probably the hardest class I had in college back then. It was called interpersonal communication, where you had to give up and give a speech in front of the class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hated that stuff. I was always a quiet kid. Now you got to do it every day. <laughs> Gobble, gobble, everyone, and welcome to our Thanksgiving Day special. We know many of you are traveling for the holidays, so what a better way than to pair it with just a little bit of wild turkey. This past week, we did our third edition of the Bourbon Community Roundtable, and you can expect that to come out next week. We had about 30 viewers on at one point, and that's a lot of great interaction. It's a fantastic way to be a part of the podcast, so please make sure you join in next month's episode. All the links are going to be posted on all the social media channels for joining on YouTube Live. Lastly, remember to support the show on Patreon at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. Kenny and Ryan here today, and we're checking another list off the distillery today. So, Ryan, kind of tell you folks an idea of where we're at and, uh, and the time of the year for it as well. Yes, we got on the road again. We're down here in Lawrenceburg. Uh, you know, it's next week's one of my favorite holidays, Thanksgiving. In Kentucky, there's no better holiday for me, getting together, family, hanging out. But we're here at Wild Turkey, so uh, gobble, gobble, you know. So how <laughs> fitting is that? We're by... Uh, 
uh, Thanksgiving week. But no, super excited to be here and, you know, give our guests, uh, you know, an inside with Jimmy and Eddie today. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very big, very excited for for this series. So we're going to have Eddie on here in a second. But, you know, it took it took months to to get these guys on just because of the hectic travel schedules of what's going on. Yeah, the, you're hard to get hold of. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. The, you know, when they when they say that the master distillers are now the, the rock stars of the industry, it's it's not really far fetched anymore. No, it, it's it, I'm sure we'll hear from them. But it seems like that's all they're doing is having to go promote and talk about the brand. And it's, it's probably hard to get anything done, <laughs> actual <laughs> distilling done. Well, good. So with that, so we'll introduce our guest. So today we have Eddie Russell. Eddie is the master distiller here at Wild Turkey. So Eddie, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So we we talked about, should I should say, it was a few episodes ago we had Matt Gandolfo on. Matt is a brand representative for Wild Turkey. So we talked a lot about the brands. And, you know, we're not going to hit on that too much. So anybody of our past listeners, if you want to learn more about uh, Kentucky Spirit, 101, um, the the honey liqueur, all these different things, like please go and check out that, that past episode because today we're really going to focus on the man behind the story. So the first thing I'm going to kind of pose at you and in, in really talking about what we talk about are a lot of guest about is, you know, we'll talk about your childhood, right? Like kind of talk about what your upbringing was like. Well, for me, uh, my family was pretty athletic, so we were into sports a lot. Uh, I have an older brother and older sister, so we run around. My dad used to play sports when we were younger. Uh, and as a young kid, I was sort of a kid that followed his dad around. And my dad came out here seven days a week. He's still doing it 62 years later, coming out here seven days a week. But I would come out to the stairway with him, and I loved the big buildings. I knew everybody that worked here, so it was always a lot of them would have candy for me, and it was just a fun place to come. So, you know, besides sports, hanging around with him, coming out here. What kind of sports? Uh, I played football and baseball. My brother played basketball, baseball, and football. Uh, back in those days, there wasn't soccer and all that <laughs> Lacrosse, stuff. Lacrosse, you know? field hockey. <laughs> That's <you> right. All <laughs> new age sports. Old style sports, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, growing up doing that, hanging around, we never left the state of Kentucky because my dad never left this place. He'd come out here seven days a week and, like I said, still does. So I guess kind of talk about uh, some of the things that were were past uh, the high school stage because I think I read somewhere that you were you were going to play college ball at one point or anything like that. So I did. I went down to Western Kentucky University and played for a year. And I always tell people I had a choice: I could give up school, give up football, or give up partying. So uh, I give up football definitely, not the partying in the school, but uh, really. I mean, you grew up here in this little small town. Lunchburg's a wonderful place, and you understand that as you get older. But as a young guy, it's like, you know, you want to get a college degree and get out. Get the hell out of here. That's exactly (laughs) right. I mean, there's just not much here for, you know, 18 to 25, 30-year-old guy to do. And I grew up thinking that. I grew up thinking, you know, I want to get a college education and and get away from here because, you know, I think you can ask any of the guys that are my age that are still like Freddie. No, he was the same way. He didn't really want to get in this business and get stuck in, you know, in this job. But um, so for me, that was my thoughts. And I so, had, so you had different aspirations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What were you thinking? Just some kind of business. And, you know, mainly just getting to a bigger city uh, was what I was thinking about. Uh, you know, like I said, I love sports, even maybe coaching or something like that. But Really, the main thing was, you know, just getting away from this small town. And I had a year of college left, and uh, 
I thought I would lay around the house and my mother didn't have that same thought. <laughs> so she made Jimmy give me a job and he did. He started me out bottom man in the union here. Uh, so m- most disturbers are union. So if you've ever been in one, you know what the bottom man does. He does the jobs that nobody else wants to do. So I stack cases and roll barrels and painted buildings and dump bottles, just anything. The hardest jobs. So that's well, how you got roped into this situation then. <laughs> So that's how I got here. And then uh, I got a taste right out of the barrel and realized I'm never leaving this place. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the worst jobs you did? Uh, what did you just hate it? To me, I mean, I really, once I got here, I didn't hate any of it. I loved it because, I mean, there was only like 60 or 70 people here and I'd known them my whole life. So it was a very family type atmosphere and it still is today. Uh I liked working in the warehouse a lot better than I did balling. Balling is sort of that assembly line job where you got to do something continuously where you're out in the warehouse, you're inside, you're outside, you know, you got time to talk to people. And so I liked that end of it a lot better than I did, you know, stacking a 50 pound case of bottles or 25 pound uh, case of bottles all day long, every day. That sort of gets old when you're sitting there by yourself. So probably not my favorite job would be, you know, either dumping bottles or stacking cases and bottling. So those are some of the worst ones, right? Yeah. So I guess, if, is there a job here that you said that maybe you haven't done? There is not a single job here that I haven't done. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's, that's an easy one then. So I guess we can we can kind of fast forward. So on, on June 5th of 2015, you were named uh, the, the newest successor to being the master distiller here at Wild Turkey. So talk about your job now. Well, for, for the last 10 or 15 years, I started out in the union, as I said, and then Jimmy brought me into the distillery. Jimmy is my father, but I do refer <laughs> to him as Jimmy. Uh he brought me in the stirring and taught me all the yeast, all the secrets, supposed secrets that we have, and uh, learned how to do that. And then I took over the maturation in the mid-90s. Uh, so picking out all the barrels for each of our products. So now it's more back to a little of both, you know, making sure the distillery's running right, uh, making sure we're tasting all the right barrels and the Russell's line, I try to taste all of them. Uh, but all of our formulas. Uh, so it's more overseeing than hands-on for me anymore. So, you know, instead of making the yeast, instead of setting the schedule, because I used to set the schedule for everybody here. Uh, so it's more overseeing a couple of guys that, that do that type stuff now. Did he have a training manual or is it all in his head? Jimmy? Yeah. Uh, it was apprenticeship. This is one of the few jobs, I mean, you know, I know we'll probably talk a little bit about what a master stiller is later on, but for Jimmy and for me, he learned through apprenticeship. I mean, to us, there's so many parts to it. There's not one degree we could go get to become a master distiller in the old days. So, you know, for me, it was get in there and figure it out with my dad. You know, he's like, he knew the answer, but he wanted me to get in there and figure it out. And that. I didn't think it was such a great thing back then, but it was. It was the best thing he could have ever done. Because, you know, once you do something and learn what you did on your own, the mistakes you make, it, it helps a whole lot down the line of, of what you know. So I want to kind of roll back to your formal education then. So did your formal education at, at, at Western Kentucky have like, prepare you for anything that would you would do within the master, the master distiller side? Because I know we talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, I, you know, was a chemistry major. I, I did biology and I did all these crazy things. You know, kind of talk about did that have anything for it or is it more experience, education learned through experience well, with you? 
it's like I said, I have a degree in business. So the business degree helped me do budgets. It helped me understand how to cost account, you know, how to figure out what it costs to move a barrel around in a warehouse and fix my budget, how, you know, the cost of barrels and things like that. Uh, but in the actual making whiskey, I mean, yeah, if I was a chemical engineer, that'd get me through the part that makes the whiskey, but that's just a small part of it. Then you got to know about oak wood. You got to know how, what kind of barrel to use, how to age it, what floors to put it on, how it ages, the temperatures in your warehouse, how it's going to affect your whiskey, uh, how to taste the whiskey and understand the flavors that you can mingle together to make each one of our products. I mean, we're very unusual here at Wild Turkey. We only have one recipe for bourbon and one proprietary yeast. And we have one recipe for rice. So I have 81-101 Rare Breed Kentucky Spirit, Russell's 10, Russell's Single Barrel. All those products taste different, but when they go in the barrel, they're all exactly alike. Uh, so that part of it is not something anybody could teach you in a school. You can learn parts of it, but to have five different degrees, which I'd say Jimmy knows as much as somebody with five different type degrees. I mean, he can put you to sleep talking about oak wood and how it grows out in the forest and, you know, whether it gets the east or west sun or the north or south wind or if it was grown on a slope or, you know, whether it's in the south or the north. So there's just so much involved in it. I mean, I'm 35 years in and it, it, I still learn from him. So you got the honey holes and the warehouses mapped out. You know, these are the magic spots. Oh, yeah. Those are the ones that are my single barrels or what I get to drink on the weekend. <laughs> your, your reserve just is for you. <laughs> so can, can, I, can I talk about some of the, the biggest lessons that maybe your father taught you that, that really prepared you for this role that you've been in now for over a year? Well, for me, it's. I mean, I'm sure I'm like most any uh, kid that comes and works for their family. It's probably the hardest thing you could ever do, work for your family. But coming in, as i seen our industry, my dad and Booker Noah and Elmer Teeley and Parker Beam were best friends. And those four guys were basically making all the bourbon when I was growing up. You know, you had a few from Brown Foreman, Lincoln Henderson, Jimmy Bedford, but they concentrated more on Jack Daniels. Uh, so those guys all had the same ideas. They all thought the same way. They made different whiskey. They wanted to taste different, but in their mind, it was like, it was this way or no way. You drink it neat or on ice or little water, no mixed drinks. We're only going to promote the older gentlemen. You know, it was just our whole industry was that way. So as I came in was probably the the worst times for bourbon and brown spirits in general, whether it was Irish, Scotch, or bourbon, uh, because things were going way down because vodkas that came out in my generation was drinking white spirits. So as everybody started changing, because everybody used to bottle and bond at 100, everybody used great grains, everybody aged longer, everybody started changing. They started lowering their proof. They started taking the rind malt out of their, their mashed, and there we sat was 101, big, bold character, lots of flavor, lots of spice. And I came in and thought, well, we got to change. And, and there, they're like, no. And Jimmy's <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you know, I tell people all the time, I thought that was my name for about 10 years was no, because I'd say, <laughs> let's do this. No, let's try this. No. But thank goodness he didn't, you know, because now everybody's coming back to what wild turkey's always been about, an older age whiskey at higher proofs. Um, 
And I think the biggest lesson he taught me without actually just saying it over and over, but was he was only going to do it the right way. I mean, he never used GMO grains. We're the only distillery that's made bourbon in America continuously. He's never used GMO corn. He always has distilled at those low proofs like everybody used to, barreled at low proofs, bottled at high proofs, aged longer. So it was just that idea, if you're going to do it, do it right. Sooner or later, people will figure out you're doing it right. And that's what's really helped Wild Turkey in the last eight or ten years is this bourbon craze has went crazy. <laughs> what was life like before the bourbon craze? Uh, it was still okay, but it was a lot slower times. I mean, we were still making good whiskey. Wild Turkey was very lucky. Uh, we were, you know, not losing too much ground, not gaining too much ground, but still we're doing fine. Our company was getting us overseas a little bit, you know, which not everybody was doing. So we were growing a little bit, but it was slow times. I mean, you know, we worked when I started, you made your whiskey from, uh, September, end of September till the 1st of June, and then you were shut down and you bottled most of your stuff from September to December. Um, so there was a lot of times there wasn't a lot going on, especially in the summertime here. Uh, now it's there's not a peaceful moment <laughs> at all ever, it seems like. Do you miss that peace and quiet ever? Uh, not really. I mean, it's just so neat to be, and I know anybody that's been in this industry whether you're Freddie Noe in a seventh generation or me, which is a basically a fourth generation, but third generation here, uh, to see people that appreciate what your father spent 62 years putting his life and soul into, and you spent 35 years, and people understand what you've done and respect what you've done. Because when I started, nobody knew any of those guys. They were just guys... And that's probably the biggest downfall for me. Now, Jimmy's at age, you know, that it's okay. But for me, I would rather be making whiskey. Yeah. But I understand the part about you have to get out and you have to shake hands and you've got to do, do podcasts, education. Do podcasts. Podcasts. Yeah. yeah, do education. And that's the biggest part of it for us is the education, you know, because – People want to know the true stuff that's going on. So you got to get out there and you got to talk about it and you got to tell people. I mean, people love the stories. And I mean, I've been around this my whole life. You know, you get around Freddie or Craig Beam and their fathers have been in it their whole life and they're talking about the stories. It's They're just amazing. So did you and Freddie ever get in some mischief together? Oh, uh, yeah, we <laughs> did for a long time until we got working here, and then it slowed down, and now we get to see each other out <laughs> on the road. So we still get together. So, yeah, he, I've known Freddie for many, many years. So I guess another question to kind of ask you is uh, just about the, the bourbons in general, right? For the longest time, your father was the one maybe choosing and, and doing a lot of different things. Do you consider you and yourself having, or you and your father having the same kind of palate, being able to pick out those same sort of characteristics that keeps a, a consistency through all the brands as well? I definitely think that uh, he taught me what he was looking for. So 101, uh, Kentucky Spirit, Rare Breed. Those are his brands. So I understand what he wants in those brands. You know, 101 was a little easier. Kentucky Spirit was a little easier. Now, Rare Breed was a little harder because it's a barrel proof. It's three different ages. So I had to figure out what he was looking for out of those three ages. 
but definitely we have a different taste profile what we like. My dad is that older generation that likes that big, bold taste right off the bat, where I like stuff that starts out a little creamy thickness, a little sweetness, and then gives me the spiciness, but comes back with a little sweetness. And I think if you try any of our products, you'll see the 101, the Kentucky Spirit, the Rare Breeder, like that. If you look at the Russell's line, which I came out first for his 45th anniversary, and I've added a single barrel Russell's, it's a little more my style where it's a little sweeter and creamier up front, still has that signature wild turkey spice in the mid-palate. But it's a little different taste profile than what he has. Now, your dad has said time and time again that he's hard-headed and old-fashioned, right? I think think you can see that on a lot of different articles. (laughs) Yeah. So are there some traditions here at Wild Turkey that that you intend to keep uh, without ever going away, or are there some things that maybe you think that, that could be using some changes? Well, for me, uh, the thing I learned, because I did, I thought I should change everything. You know, that was just my thought. Everybody was changing, and you think if everybody's changing, you're standing still, you're getting left behind. So I thought change everything. Uh, But now I realize I don't want to change anything about what he's built. But as you've seen, I'm doing some things that are different. I still use that recipe. We don't make but that one recipe, but with the Russell's line, with Master's Keep 17-year-old, if you've ever heard Jimmy, he doesn't like whiskey over 12 years old. You know, I've put out a 17-year-old. I put out a 16- and 13-year-old for his 60th anniversary. So you see older. I'm fooling with some barrel finishes, doing some experiments that I really don't even tell him about because he doesn't <laughs> like things like that. We but, won't tell him. We won't yeah. tell him. But for me, it's you've got to stick to your roots and got to do what he's built here is why we're still here and why we're still growing. But I think there's also there's places you can go and keep that same quality. Where I said I've been very lucky where Jimmy and Booker and Elmer and those guys, they 10, 12, 15 years ago, everybody you talked to was a 50 and older male. There was hardly ever a female in any place you went. Or hipsters. Or hipsters, yeah. (laughs) But the bartenders changed that completely. Now it's a 21 to 40-year-old male and female that's growing our industry. So I have to be prepared to make sure that, yes, I want them to drink 101 in Rare Breed, but also I I need 81, something that starts off a little smoother, a little lighter, that they can start with. The Russell's line doing that smaller batch that, you know, 101's a 1,400-barrel dump. Russell's is a 150-barrel dump. The single barrels, you know, things like that that just to them wasn't worth the time and the effort. But for me, that's what's really gaining your your people that, that respect and like what you do. Do you think your dad has uh, found maybe a newfound respect for you if you're able to hide 17-year-old barrels for him and be able to put that out as <laughs> something? Maybe respect wouldn't be the right word. <laughs> uh, but I think, yes, I think it came a time uh, several years ago but that he finally thought, you know, he's not going to screw things up too much, basically. Uh I mean, you got to think about, and I understand this completely, and it was very easy for me. I always thought there only should be one master distiller. I mean, nowadays, 
You know, Master Stiller is a word that's thrown around a lot. But for me, Jimmy and Booker and Elmer and those guys were true Master Distillers. And Jimmy kept saying, you know, we need to name you Master Stiller. And I'm like, it's, uh, you know, it'd be wonderful to ever get into that group. You know, going into the Hall of Fame with those guys, the Bourbon Hall of Fame was amazing. But to me, it was, it was just I wanted to make whiskey, you know. So it didn't matter what they really called me. Uh, and then we sort of had to fight him off for a year or so because his 60th anniversary was coming up and we were trying to plan things behind his back over that. And he was like, no, we need to do this. And I'm like, just hang on. <laughs> you know? yeah. So we wanted to wait till that was over. But, I mean, I've been doing the work of a master stiller probably for 15 years. Uh, but getting the title, it's wonderful. But to me, Jimmy's still the master distiller here. Do you feel like a sense of pressure kind of to keep it going, you know, the – I, not really. I always told people, you know, I got that question from the first day I ever did a marketing event. And I, I've done a few for the last 10 or 12 years. And the last three or four has been consistent, a lot of them. But, you know, a few off and on. And that would be one of the first questions where, man, you got some big shoes to fill. And I'm like, I'll never fill those shoes. I'll just slip them on and go my own way. And that's the way yeah. I sort of looked at it, you know. I'll keep what he's built here, but I'll, I'll show what, you know, what I put to it. And hopefully it's something that he's he's happy with. And so far he has been. So I'm still working here. <laughs> <laughs> work in progress. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. This is a question from somebody that posted on Facebook, uh, Eric Hasselgaard, and he said, bourbon's root in tradition, some 200 years ago, some 50. What are the things that you're learning about bourbon today that you hope to pass on to future bourbon producers? And maybe one day, if I'm not mistaken, your son is also working here as well. 
Yeah, my son's actually a brand ambassador for us. He's actually in Austin, Texas, because he wanted to go to that bigger city too. <laughs> nice place. He to should be. be. He should come back. Yeah, really nice place. Uh, he he'll come back probably next year sometimes. But um, I think you know we we get that question. It used to be my dad called me the new guy up until a year or two ago. It was always, this is Jimmy and the new guy, Eddie, 30 some years. <laughs> 30 there. Yeah. It's like, what do you got to do around here? But right? now <laughs> it's, you know, there's so many new people coming into the business and they, of course they want to come up and shake Jimmy's hand and say hello. And they'll come up to me. And their first question is, what's one word, one sentence of advice you would give us? And for me, it's, for me, it's really just telling the truth. If you've got a good product, don't make up a story that's not true because these young bartenders will figure that out. There's too much information out there. But basically, back to what Jimmy's always taught me, do it the right way. Don't cut corners. Don't, you know, Jimmy always said as people would come in and we'd get new brand managers and they'd say, well, let's change this or change that. And Jimmy would look at him and say, all right, here's your choice. You can make five million extra dollars the next two years. And then after that, you're not going to make anything because you're going to kill the product. So don't jump on that easy bandwagon, what Jimmy would call fad, just yeah. to make that few dollars because it's going to hurt you down the road. So there's another question from Ryan Oberleitner. And he says, uh, why has the, the, the entry proof at Wild Turkey been raised over the years? And do you think that's had any effect on it as well? No, I mean, I experimented with the wall. Uh, to tell you why I raised it was Jimmy barreled everything here at 107 proof, which was unbelievable because that was about three extra million dollars a year just to buy barrels to put our new alcohol in. <laughs> Coming from the business side, right? Yeah, yeah. Coming, cause, and that's a side Jimmy never thought about. It. it was just about taste for Jimmy. But for me, I had to understand that part of it. But we put everything in the barrel at 107. So as if you know how whiskey ages, we're completely natural, seven-story warehouses. You go up in proof at the top floors, but the bottom floors you go down in proof. Everything was fine as long as we had 101 and 81. Or back then it was actually 80 before I changed it to 81. And then he came out with Rare Breed. So Rare Breed was barrel-proof, and we wanted it somewhere around that 108 to 110 proof. So I had to steal all my high-proof stuff to make that. So I wound up with older whiskey that was below 101. I actually had to stop selling a 12-year-old 101 proof in Japan and go to a 13-year-old 91 proof. Jimmy's Diamond, I had to, had to put it out at 91 proof because when I dumped it, it was 95. So that's the reason I went up because I always want to be in that 100 to 110 proof range because that Jimmy is Mr. 101. <laughs> So, you know, I do, I put some in the barrel at 110, a lot in at 115 now, just to make sure. I wouldn't go any higher than that. A lot of people do it at 125. Uh, Taste-wise, we thought it brought out some stuff in that wood that we didn't like. And also, we don't want to add much water at the end. You know, and that's why he did 107. When our dumps came out on average, even dumping 1,400 barrels together, it'd be 104 or 5 proof, and he bottled at 101. So I don't want to have that a lot of water to it. I want a very natural product. Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess you, you kind of hinted on my next thing. So you talked about the 13-year age-dated export. Is there, it was actually another question that came from Twitter. Do you ever anticipate something like that ever coming stateside? 
Uh, right now, uh, there's no way. <laughs> I'm barely keeping up as it is. Uh, age statements are wonderful. Um, it doesn't mean it's a better product. I mean, I think 10-year-old for me is the perfect age, and my Russell's 10-year-old 90 proof is my favorite. Uh, that age statement will stay. If they, my name will come off of it if they take that age <laughs> statement off of it. I just, you heard it here first. You get that back into make that nickel today, but you're going to kill the brand. And that's exactly what you do. The reason that there's countries that South America, Japan, some of those countries are so much into age statements. And that had a lot to do with the scotch. But you see, even scotches taking age statements off, going younger because they don't have the alcohol to do it. So our 101 still seven and a half to eight years old. Our 81 six and a half years old. So it's two and the 81's two and a half years older than any other 80 proof out there. So we're always older. Uh, but I don't right now with the Russell's 10, seeing us come back with a 12 or 13 year old in the States. But we do it to Japan because that's all their mentality is. It's gotta be eight. We do an eight-year-old 101 over there, and we do a 13-year-old 91 proof over there. So there's another question that came from Jack Johnson on Facebook, and and he might be just trying to, like, fish here for answers. But he's saying that in, in less than 18 months, between you and your dad, you're going to have a, a total of 100 years together as master distillers. Uh, can we expect some outstanding special edition, like a centennial edition or something <laughs> like that? So definitely, you know, they've sort of ripped me. I do think a little on the marketing end. The really neat thing about it is Jimmy and I won't hit 100 years. We'll hit 101 years. Okay, here oh. we go. So right now he's got 62 and I got 35. So that's 97 years. Mm -hmm. When we both hit the next mark, it'll be 99. Then the next mark will be 101. So the 101 celebration will be really the one that I'm thinking and I'm looking at whiskey, looking, sitting back. Like I said, I do fool around a little bit with different things, and I'm not sure exactly what I want to be because we have a little different taste profile. He <laughs> right. likes a little younger whiskey than I do, but we'll definitely come up with something then. Usually, there's a publicist here to like be like, no, no don't, no, don't, don't, don't say anything yeah, about this exactly. <laughs> to, to yeah. babysit. Yeah. So I'm glad there's not one here to kind of give us some a little something to think about. I'm, I'm, my, I'm my own publicist. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we like it off the cuff. Yeah. That's how we got to have it. So uh, one of the last questions that we'll take from from our our fans uh, was from Will T, and it says, "Can we please get age and warehouse info in private and single barrels? It would give us a reason to buy even more multiples." Well, if back you, to the marketing if, side. <laughs> if you get private barrels uh, from some store that's bought a private barrel, they do know the age. Our wild turkey Kentucky spirit is always at least eight years old, sometimes nine years old. Our Russell's single barrel is always nine to 11 years old. Um, the the hard part about it, if you stay to age, say if I did eight years on Kentucky Spirit and then one year I'm using nine, then you're losing out on that benefit. If my Russell's single barrel is nine this year and 10 or 11 next year, you're losing out on that. So staying that age, like I said before, any wild turkey is going to be older than most any regular whiskey out there. 
Now, there's one question that Ryan and I kind of talked about on the way up here, and it's it's what do you see right now happening into the bourbon industry? It could be through the master distillers. It could be through um, just the aging process, the barrel finishing process, uh, the retail side of it. What's one thing that just annoys you right now that's <laughs> happening in the bourbon industry? Well... <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we don't have the PR person. That's here. right. <laughs> Very politically correct. Uh, for me, it's just how much different it was in the old days compared to now. Back in the old days, there was so few guys making bourbon. There was no marketing stories that weren't true. There was no stories about brands that weren't true. Everything was put out there. There was no tricking people and to believe in this is this and this like is triple, that. triple oaked and all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I go back to when I started everything that's going on today, the double, oak, if you, if that's what you'd like to call it, uh, they were trying that makers 46, putting the regenerative stays in barrels. They were trying that back in the eighties. I did, uh, about six, uh, 30 year old or low. So Sherry cast 400 liters back late 90s and finished 10-year-old bourbon in there and called it Sherry's Signature. Uh, I couldn't give it away because my bourbon guy wanted bourbon. Now I probably couldn't sell enough of it. You couldn't make enough of it. I don't have a problem with any of it. It's just the marketing, and I understand business and marketing. You've got to have a story. Everything's got to have a story. I just wish most of them would be a little more true than they are. (laughs) And I think that's what helps Wild Terry because it is – very authentic. Very you know what true. you're getting. Yeah. You know. Well, let's stay on the marketing side. So you, you've now got Matthew McConaughey. You're rubbing oh, yeah. shoulders with with big dogs in the the acting industry. So kind of talk about uh, you how know how much first- more ladies have you met? Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when he's around, there's no ladies paying attention to Jimmy, and usually they're always paying attention to Jimmy. Um, it was a neat deal. I mean. My father probably wasn't on board at the beginning because it always been, he had only been him as the person. He saw him on Days Confused and was like, hell no, we're not getting (laughs) (laughs) But he actually, we got him here really because of his connection to Kentucky. His dad actually played football at the University of Kentucky for Bear Bryant, and that's where he met his mother. So that sort of got him into, let's come to Kentucky. And actually, he likes tequila and bourbon. He has a drink of one or the other every night, I think. Um, So he came here, and and we sat down. He had his all these Hollywood people with him, you know, his publicist and his agent and all those guys. And we were sitting over at our new visitor center having lunch, and he— you know, he's he just got there, and he's like, you know, I'm just not sure. He said, I've got two small children at that time. Now he's got three. He said, I'm not sure I want to get my name behind something like this. But as he spent the day with us, he's a very big family man. So it was me, my father, and my son, and we took him around, and we talked about our plant. He met some of our employees and seen how everybody was still family type. I think that's what just sort of changed things about it, you know, and how authentic we was and how Jimmy had never changed, how he'd stayed the way it was. So it turned out just a super cool guy. I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me, but how smart he was really did surprise me. I mean, his mind just constantly is going. Um, But when he came back, 
we did that little six minute video, which only took 13 or 14 hours to make. It's on <laughs> YouTube. And he came in and, uh, of course, by contract, you have to supply him this Winnebago for in between. Because if you've ever done anything like that, you're action for three minutes and waiting hour till they set up the next thing. Well, he never went to it. He would stop and he'd talk to one of our employees and he would ask them how their family was. And I mean, he seemed as much a Kentucky guy as anybody. Of course, he grew up in, around Austin, Texas. So it's not too far difference in the type of people, but just the way it was really, really made me happy that he did it. And then of course, for me, and Jimmy, we can only get around so much where he can reach millions with one little commercial, you know. Right. And and Freddie stole Mila Kunis, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of give Freddie a hard time about that one. I love, uh, you know, I love that that's come about. But I also love that Matthew speaks to women and men. She, Mila definitely speaks to men, <laughs> no matter what age they are, right. I'm sure. Uh, but there might be some women jealous of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, it just seems such more so more authentic with him doing the talking and him saying the things that he's saying about wild turkey. And hopefully, you know, I can get him a little more involved. I, I tasted him on some things and see him what his really taste is like. Of course, he's like. 99 out of 100 people I've ever had here. He liked it straight out of the barrel, just just like we do. But, oh, hell yeah. You know, so we'll see what happens down the road. Right now he's contracted, I think, to do three commercials on a three-year contract. And he, he told him, he says, I'll only do this on one condition, that I have total control. He said, I want to produce, I want to write, and I want to star in the commercials. So he said, there's a story to tell and nobody's told it the right way. So I think he's getting off to a good start with that, what he's doing. Well, it's great. I think there's uh, there's one more question I want to ask. And of course, it has to be about bottles because that's just part of the bottle chase. So there was a, a release last year, Russell's Reserve 98. And I'm kicking myself in the ass because it had a high price tag, but it's touted as probably one of the best releases that's ever came out of this distillery. Kind of talk <laughs> about what magic was happening with that particular release. So... Back in 1998 is when I started setting aside barrels for Jimmy's 45th anniversary to do the Russell's 10. Uh, so these were some barrels that were left over. And honestly, I was trying to keep them hidden because they were <laughs> such good liquid. But accounting uh, finally figured out we had them and there was only 23 of them left. So me and Jimmy's always, both of us have always been, you know, a lot of the brands that sell for huge costs is because there's so few bottles of it, you know? But we've always been, when I do a limited time offering like the 17-year-old or Diamond, I usually do 50 to 60,000 bottles, not cases, bottles. That way I can send some to Australia and Japan, which is our two big export markets, and have enough here that people, anybody wants it can get it. When 23 barrels, I got 2,070 bottles. And it was just, those barrels were just so special as far as taste and everything. I actually dumped them about 14, 15 months before we ever got them in a bottle because it got to the point where it was perfect. And <laughs> if it stayed in that barrel any longer, I was afraid it was going to go the other way. So we actually dumped it in a tote 
you know, just to keep it until we, because you got to file for colas to do the new label, the new brand, things like that. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I may continue to do that with the Russell's brand because it is such a small craft brand. Uh, so maybe I'll do a release. But if it's the normal Wild Turkey LTO, I still would like to do those more bottles. And yeah, I, I always tell people I'm like Lucy and, and Charlie Brown, you know, when the insurance commercial, it all should be a nickel, you know. So when they throw out those prices, I'm like, no, that's too much. But people spending, that's yeah. why they put that price out there. You know, it's amazing. I mean, I grew up when you could get the best bourbon for $15, $16 for $7.50, and now it's like Now it's every, an expensive piss, yeah. you know. But that's that's just the different generation. I mean, you look at me when I started – you know, I might have bought several bottles for price. <laughs> it didn't matter what it tasted like. Nowadays, my son, I mean, and his whole group of friends, they would rather pay $50 for a good bottle of whiskey than $20 for a bad bottle of whiskey. Now, they're not going to drink it as fast because they don't have the money to buy them that regular. But, you know, it, it's just a different generation. People would rather spend a little extra money to get a better product. And and that's not the way it used to be. It used to be you just bought it because of the price. So we're going to wrap it up here. So kind of give us what's next for you. Travel, spreadsheets, <laughs> bottles. <laughs> well, for me, I'm always on that quest of finding something that's different and special that I can put out there, whether it be a limited time offering or, or a new brand for us. Um, I guess talk about how many barrels that you do have here and then how often is there you actually going out and looking for them as well? So tasting is every day just about with your tasting barrels. So we do anniversaries every couple of years. I have a little over 570,000 53-gallon barrels aging. Uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot of sampling. A lot yeah. of sampling, and I, I definitely want to taste all of them at least once or twice, you know. <laughs> That's why I'm still here. <laughs> um you know, you got to keep in mind in Kentucky, I think there's like 4.6 million people and six and a half million bourbon barrels aging. So we got it figured out here. We got a barrel and a half a piece in case something happens. Apocalypse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and is uh, Warehouse A something special? Warehouse A is our original, original warehouse. It's built in the 1890s. It sits right close to our Warehouse B. The warehouses are alphabetic. And you can't build them that close no more. So there's always a good wind tunnel. As my father's always said, you need a dry place, but you also need a lot of air circulation. So some of my warehouses that were built up through 1950 are some of my favorites out of my 27. The newer ones are separate, they're apart. I think all of them are pretty good, but sometimes I go look and just two or three different ones for my favorite whiskey. And are you guys increasing a lot of production? Because I know we can we can drive around to Bardstown and you see gigantic monster rack houses that are being built. So what's kind of next on regards well, of expansion for you? Well, we're building one every year. There's been a little over $120 million spent here in the last eight years. Uh, we doubled our capacity of our distillery in December of 2010. It was a $50 million investment. Built a new bottling facility about four or five years ago was a $44 million investment. Uh, building new warehouses every year. They're two to three million bucks, each one of them. But you got to, you, you know, I used to, as I was in charge of maturation, I 
for years I kept telling them because we were growing and I kept telling them, you know, we need to build a warehouse. And they're like, why do you need warehouses? And I'm like, well, you might be dumping 60, but we're making 80,000 barrels. That's a warehouse <laughs> when you're full. And we were full at the time. So you're, we're still that way. And that's why most people, we actually built a warehouse in 1993 because we were at capacity. Is the first warehouse that's been built in Kentucky in over 25 years. There's probably been 50 built in the last six or seven years, <laughs> you know. Music constructions, love and life. Music does have a little monopoly on that. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure Tommy and them oh, are yeah. having a ball with I that. I know Tommy and them real well. <laughs> They're doing just fine. <laughs> well, Eddie, I want to say, again, thank you for being on the show today. It was a pleasure. I'm sure everybody here loved to kind of get those insights from you. So, yep. again, thank you for being on. Uh, happy to do it. And, and as Jimmy and I always say, you're always welcome at Wall of Turkey. Come by and see us sometime. Fantastic. So if you like what you hear, make sure you support us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bourbon Pursuit as well. Yeah, thanks again, Eddie. Appreciate the time. And uh, if you guys have show suggestions, feedback, comments, we'd love to hear it. And uh, we'll see you next time.